Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello and welcome back to GodPod. I say welcome back if you are a regular listener, if this is your first ever one, welcome to the strange world of GodPod. And... Um, uh, today we have uh, myself, Graham Tomlin. We also have Jane Williams. Hello. And we also have Hannah, Hannah Steele, who is um, our guest today. Hello. And um, Hannah, tell us your job title. You work here at St. Melitus College. Yes, so I'm tutor in theology here at St. Melitus. Brilliant. So we're looking forward to um, talking with Hannah about things that she's interested in, things she's uh, writing about and, and so on. But before, before we get to that, there was a fascinating observation made by um, uh, Micah, who comes from Portland in Oregon, who uh, says that his first question is to address one of the most nagging mysteries of all, what happened to Godpod number 22? <laughs> uh, now, this is a bit of a mystery, and it's something that, that we didn't really realise until, until Micah asked the question. We went back over the Godpods, and now we're on about 100 and something. And he's absolutely right. There is no Godpod 22. There's a Godpod 21, there's a Godpod 23, but there's no Godpod 22. And it, to be honest, the answer to your question is I have no idea, Micah, what happened to Godpod 22. It is a complete mystery. Uh, so you kind of begin to wonder, you know, was it sort of edited out? Did yeah, we, did say, we something? say something dreadful? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the powers that be just put it in the bin before it ever got there. But for some reason, Godpod 22 isn't there. So we've sent out a search team. And we will I hope to report back. <laughs> the mysterious tapes that have been <laughs> put in the bin that have been consigned to heretical um, history. Anyway, so we have no idea what happened to Godpod 22. I suspect it's probably that, probably my fault. I probably kind of introduced Godpod 22 by saying it was Godpod 23 by mistake and they couldn't rename it. But anyway, so very good question. Very good observation from Micah. And we're really sorry we don't know the answer. And um, he actually goes on to say that that gap in the listing has all the psychological intrigue of a floor in a building to which the elevator will not take you. It's <laughs> all very intriguing. So the mystery of Godpod 22 remains. Maybe we need to do a special recording of Godpod yeah, 22. Yeah, reinsert it back yeah. into number 22 in between 21 and 23. You up for that, Hannah? Yes, sounds good. Yeah. So this is not Godpod 22, as far as we know. This is some, some other number of Godpod. But... Um, Anyway, Hannah, it's uh, great to have you with us on uh, on GodPod. And um, uh, you've been doing some writing recently and you've been uh, just coming out of your doctoral research. And it's around um, um, the whole area of the, the emerging church, this kind of movement of uh, new forms of church that have has emerged in the United States, here in Europe uh, and elsewhere in the world. And um, uh, what's the title of your book? So the title is called New World, New Church, question mark. Okay, and it's Theology. coming out of the emerging church right, the theology of the emerging yes. church brilliant good and um what, what what got you into it in the first place what what sort of got you into that whole area of thinking i've always been interested in the sort of relationship between gospel and culture and thinking about creative forms of mission and as i started reading um back in sort of early 2000s about um, the shape of mission in our culture i started being aware of 
um, alongside some of the mission-shaped church um, books that were being written. Uh, it's an interesting idea, isn't it, that we, we are living in a new world. And, and I guess back in 2003 or whatever it was, that around 2000 when you started doing this reading, I guess I remember there was a lot of discussion in Christian theological circles about postmodernism and everyone was writing about postmodernism, postmodernity, this is the new world in which we're in. You get less of that now, it's not so much of a discussion. But so I suppose my question is, you know, to what extent is that true that that we are living in a new world now compared to the this kind of pre modern, modern, late modern world, all that kind of language. You know, how much do you buy into that idea that we are in now in a new an entirely different cultural setting than we, than, than we were even 100 years ago? I mean, I think it is fair to say that the world is very different from how it was, you know, 30, 40 years ago, particularly in terms of the role that Christianity plays within society, um, particularly its lessening from kind of the dominant narrative of our, of our culture. But I think our, we live in a very multi-global, multi-national um, world mm -hmm. Now, so there are many different stories, many different perspectives, many different voices being told, and postmodernity is part of that conversation. But I don't think it's the whole picture. Because I, I suppose, sorry, Jane. I mean, post, I suppose post postmodernism was slightly about that idea that now we have this multiplicity of perspectives, and there is no lo no longer one meta narrative, no no one single story that defines the way we see the world, whether that's Christianity or Marxism or fascism or whatever else it might be it is that multiplicity uh, itself but do you feel that that particular so postmodernism itself is in itself a perspective rather than a, a an all-encompassing yes of, because know, view I, of the world because i think there are some people who still often operate within very modernist tendencies yeah. they still want black and white right and wrong answers to to life because in a sense I, you know I, I sometimes wonder whether one of the reasons why you know, we hear less talk about postmodernity and postmodernism now. It's partly because of the, the rise of the new scientism, the new atheists, Dawkins and others, who actually are very unpostmodern. They're very modernist in the sense of having very, you know, they do believe in there being a truth, which is a scientific truth, and that's how you access truth. And uh, they're as critical of postmodernity as anybody else is, and so therefore it's taken a bit of a backseat now compared to what it was, say, 15 years ago. And I suppose another one of the big changes is that sort of 20, 30 years ago, people assumed that um, uh, religious faith altogether was, was a dying thing and, not, and wouldn't any longer be one of the, the big shapers of, uh, of the culture yeah. that we live in. And that has not proved to be true, has it? In fact, um, there's, religion uh, has more of a shaping influence on culture now, perhaps, than it has for, for centuries. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And some of the places where you... You think perhaps postmodernity would particularly thrive in global um, cities. Those are often the places now where churches mm. are, are growing and thriving, and the kind of that almost seems to counteract the argument of secularisation. And so other religions know. too. Islam yes, you know, has mushroomed in all kinds of ways. You know, healthy and unhealthy ways. You could say that of any faith as well. But as Jane says, religion is a much the secularisation thesis that religion was basically die off as the world became more modern just hasn't worked. And therefore, um, that's part of the story too. So, I mean, going back to your, your thesis on on um, the emerging church and the theology that shaped it, I mean, how, how what do you see that's positive and good and really helpful in, in some of those critiques of the past? Um, I think what I've taken that's 
primarily really positive about the emerging church's approach is this desire to actually look at our own expressions of, of faith and Christianity and to see how they are shaped by a, a particular cultural understanding. In particular, they um, talk about how the church is shaped by modernity and modernism. Mm. Um, so I welcome that kind of um, encouragement, really, to kind of look at one's own heritage and understanding of faith and to see um, that there is no such thing as a culture-free gospel. We all look and understand and speak about the gospel from a particular cultural standpoint. So I found that really helpful. Um, I've also found their desire to um, seek to reach those people for whom mainstream church is just not um, accessible or um, something that they can particularly engage with. And so that heart for, I think it started out of a real genuine heart for um, Generation X, those um, who current expressions of church were not reaching. And people um, for whom the kind of packaging, if you like, the sort of sense of the way in which church happened seemed to be culturally alien to so many, to, to a new generation of, of people who could not relate to the, the, the form and the way in which church was was presented to them, yes. is that right? Yes, absolutely. Um, I was very intrigued by the phrase "emerging church" because I mean, it sets off pictures in my brain. Is the is the church emerging um, from its nice, sleepy, dark cave, blinking in the terrible bright sunshine, or is it emerging as in the sense of gradually being born, or is it emerging like 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 uh, something a, a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis? I mean, is it a positive word, this emerging, or is it something being done to us, whether we like it or not? No, I think it was definitely meant as a very positive right. thing, and I think the fact that it is hard, one of the things about the emerging church is that it is very hard to define, and I think that is quite deliberate. I think for those key leaders within the emerging church, mm. um, they don't want to be able to pin, be pinned down by saying, this is now what we believe in the emerging church. There's this sense of it is something organic and, and developing. Um, but that brings problems and challenges as well because it raises the question of what then are your fixed points of faith in something that is emerging and something that is so driven by a cultural context as and, well and who has the power to define those fixed points absolutely That's also an interesting one isn't it so moving on to the the critique the um the questions you would have about the emerging church as a as a movement and a, as a theology i mean what, what are the key insights or thoughts that you'd you'd have as a, as a critique of that movement um one of the things i looked at particularly was um this uh the whole nature of incarnational mission is really at the heart of sort of the emerging church's engagement with culture this sort of model that um just as christ took on um human flesh um in the act of incarnation so the church is to take on and adopt the culture and customs um of the context in which it finds itself um and i think there is something very powerful in that when it encourages us to an attitude of humility, an attitude of seeking to stand inside the shoes of other people and learn what life is like in a different perspective of our own. But I think um, there's also a problem in that approach as well, um, in that it can lead, lead us to a model of complete immersion within a cultural context, because whilst Christ took on human flesh, he didn't uncritically adopt the Jewish culture of his day. So you, you see him challenging um, certain customs and practices. And also, although he became human, um, he didn't become in our image. We are in his image. So there's a, a very different dynamic, isn't there, from total absorption 
um, in a in a culture um, to one who is the creator of all things who comes to live in what he has created that's a that's a really different yes. theology isn't absolutely. it absolutely yeah I think it's um our friend Tom Gregg who's a professor in Aberdeen he often says he has a, an aversion to the the phrase incarnational as a as an adjective because um, actually you never see that adjective in scripture no. scripture or even in theological history you know in, in the fathers you talk about incarnation as a, a, a noun or even you get the word incarnate mm. but you don't get incarnational and, and actually what it refers to is, is a particular thing it is the the, the the means by which god entered into human mm. life in the moment of, of christ yes. and therefore that's not, in the one sense, something that can be repeated in quite the same way. It's something unique about that, and I think that's partly what he's he's saying about it. But I think it's also this this point that you know that that in the incarnation, it seems to me that what what happens is that God enters into human life precisely to transform it, not to leave it exactly the the same. Um, so there's this element of continuity within incarnation. You know, He remains God. You know, before the incarnation and in the incarnation, there's this continuity between his divine identity. The word incarnate is still the word, even though incarnate. Um, but it, it, the incarnate bit is actually about transformation rather than just assimilation. Absolutely. So I think I, I also have that slight nervousness about the word incarnational, which you hear all the time in student essays and everything else. Yes. <laughs> but um, I, I suppose part of it is, you know, the simple truth is we all are incarnate. We are embodied beings um and um it may be part of of what what we're being challenged to do is actually be a bit more um aware of what we are taking for granted in our so it's more about culture than than bodies isn't it it's about yes. not not being so um, wedded to our culture that we don't realize how it's constraining us and shaping our understanding mm, of the world mm, mm. and i think if you read sort of Philippians 2 that great um, hymn of the act of incarnation Paul then goes on to say let your you know follow in the likeness of Christ in your mind in terms of it's it's an attitudinal um, call really to transformation I think first and foremost in a way that the incarnation applies to our lives as disciples of Christ the, the point you raised about what are the fixed points then if we if we need to be a bit more agile and a bit more responsive to the world that we're in uh, not take our, our sort of monolithic culture with us wherever we go how do we work out what are uh, the non-negotiables the things that can't change in different circumstances and that is the million dollar <laughs> question mm. in in many ways vincent donovan has this wonderful phrase the supracultural gospel mm. and there is this sense in which um, I think the gospel um, is is always culturally embedded, but it always does stand above and beyond culture, and that's where um, our understanding of Christology is so important. Of who we who we believe Jesus to be, what does Scripture teach us about the person of Jesus? It teaches us that He is incarnate, but that He is also the resurrected Lord, that He is also the Lord who will rise again. And those, to me, seem to be some of the the fixed um, points and um, sort of non-negotiables if you like of, of the gospel and there must be great creativity and boldness and experimentation in how we articulate that and seek to live that and communicate that but if we lose the heart of that um, then I think we lose what is in essence of, of the gospel 
And I'm always very intrigued at how um, supracultural um, the Bible is, although it comes out mm. of very particular cultural contexts at particular times. It's read all over the world in ways that seem to transform lives. So you sort of get a little bit of a picture of how the Holy Spirit might actually be able to do this, might actually be able to take very particular things and yet make them supracultural. It's a good word. Yes. <laughs> in the way that the Bible can be translated into different languages in a way that the Quran, for example, can't. Because in traditional Islam, once the Quran is translated out of Arabic into another language, it's not strictly speaking the Quran. I think that's right to be to say. Whereas for us, we don't say the Bible in English is not really the Bible. Mm. You you really need to re to learn Greek and Hebrew to learn the Bible to, to read the Bible. We don't say that in a way that Muslims, for example, would need to read Arabic to read it properly. And I guess that's a, because we we have slightly different understandings of revelation within. Uh, from Islam and Christianity, but that that sense that the Bible can be translated into other mm. other language uh, languages um, is part of that very point, it seems to me. So I mean, yeah, I mean the um, well, it's an intriguing thing, this isn't it, about sort of non-negotiables and 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 um, you know what can be be changed, and I suppose that's what that's one way of thinking about it. I mean, I just, I just, I'm just trying to tease out in my own mind. Uh, an approach to it that says you know you're right you know if you have incarnation resurrection trinity those things that are those kind of creedal if you like um um the sort of stones that are in place that you, you you know that they're there and we I have to deal with them i think probably ascension is a very important one when we're talking about supracultural yeah Absolutely. yeah that's right <laughs> yes and they're not often spoken about mm. And it's, in some ways, those are, in a way, the, the key to the transformation of culture, it seems to me. You know, because re resurrection is all about the transformation of the body of mm. Jesus into this resurrection body that both has continuity and discontinuity. You know, the, the disciples recognize him. It's Jesus, but they don't recognize him because he doesn't yes. look like mm. funny. So that's that same thing that's going on mm. there. And which is why, you know, it seems to me that incarnation, resurrection, Ascension, the cross itself is a, in, in some ways a this is kind of Bartian point, I suppose. It's it's always quite a quite a a no to human culture, and a transformation, a transfiguration of, of human culture rather than a than a kind of adoption of it. The emphasis seems to me on entering into culture precisely to transform it, rather than just entering into it with some disembodied message that you clothe in the, the, the in 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 that culture and somehow. Um, you know, so you, so you have a nice, neat division between what you what you can leave there and what you don't. It seems to me we're talking about the whole transformation of, of culture, but within the terms of that culture, if that makes some sense. But it can be, make us very scared in missional terms, can't it? You, you sort of... Um, it, it's very tempting to take your little list of things that you must say and that people must understand wherever you go. Um, and so you can sort of see that that might... Um, really close down mission if you're fearful of whether you're passing on the true gospel or not. Absolutely, I think that's where the Holy Spirit is so important, this discernment um, of what is a benefit in culture and what is actually, you know, warrants some critique. Um, and don't we see that in our world today with notions of post-truth where we actually need to critique our cultural context as well as affirm um, certain aspects of it. And that's a, a journey, that's a, um, a commitment to um, scripture and um, 
Holy Spirit inspired mm. discernment. And we've talked about some of the maybe theological critiques of of, um, of that emerging church and its theology of incarnation and so on. But do, do you have sort of missiological critiques of it as well? Do you have uh, and its its approach to um, to mission? Are there or would you draw that distinction at all? Or what, what, what other things would you want to say? Um, sort of missiologically about the emerging church and its approach to uh, to mission and church life. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting about the emerging church is that a lot of the key writers are practitioners rather mm. than theologians. Mm. Um, mm. And I think that is often the case in our thinking about mission, that the mission gets written by the practitioners. And in a way, that's mm. a good. Mm. Um, that's a good thing because we need the creative ideas um, and the work in, in practice of living out the gospel in the world. But actually, there is also then the need for um, theological um, engagement. And when our pragmatics um, lead our, our mission engagement, then we can often um, lack that kind of theological depth. Um, if you like, the latest idea almost becomes our um, theology about about mission and evangelism. And certainly with within evangelicalism, we can tend towards the latest fad or the latest um, idea. Um, so I think there's a tension there around pragmatics and, and missiology as well and how those two mm. work together. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I mean, one, one other question coming out from, from another line is, is I guess that there are people who would say that, well, church is church. You know, church has always had a particular way of doing things. Church is its own culture. It has its own language, its own um, rituals, its own format. You know, we don't, you know, bread and wine is always bread and wine. And we don't change it into Coke and crisps today because there's something specific about bread and wine. It's always been that. And that kind of cultural change just isn't appropriate. And same for many of the other practices of the church, uh, which have go back centuries. Um, we shouldn't be too sort of anxious about cultural changes all the time. But actually, part of becoming a Christian is learning the language of church, learning the the ritual, learning the practices, learning the habits, learning the whole this whole new world of church, uh, and therefore this sort of move towards you know mission shaped church, you know messy church, you know, new forms of church trying to kind of change the packaging doesn't really work, um, because the packaging almost kind of is mm -hmm. the gospel. You can't make that separation. How do you respond to that kind of um, I think, critique? I think that's a really interesting um, point, and I think. There is a sense in which to become a Christian is an invitation to a completely different way of life. Mm. I was thinking about Colossians recently and where Paul says, you know, you have you are now seated with Christ mm. at the right mm. hand of mm. God. That's a staggering statement about what it is to be a, Christ, a Christian, that you have entered into an entirely distinct and different life. And so there are elements of your life that will obviously change and transform and will be mm. um, at odds sometimes and very distinct from your cultural context. But I think we're naive if we think that church can ever be separate from the culture in which we find ourselves. Because if you look at how church operates on a um, Sunday morning, whatever environment you may be in, there are elements of your cultural context in that, from the way the notices are read to the way you sit, whether you sit in rows, those are part of a certain um, cultural um, atmosphere. And so I think the notion of a sort of culture-free church is, is quite appealing, and there are elements of the Christian life that are distinct and um, 
an invitation to a completely new way of life, but we will always be within a cultural context. And as a matter of fact, the church has changed hugely over the centuries, hasn't it? I mean, I'm pretty sure the people who first uh, sat somewhere, um, maybe in somebody's courtyard, listening to somebody reading out Paul's letter to them, wouldn't recognise most of the church going that we now do. Um, but I suppose that what what we have in common is is this um, this community shaped around this one story, the story of Jesus, um, and the ways in which it's told and enacted and lived out, and um, and that's what we can't lose because otherwise there's no point in us at all, is there? Uh, and the, the sort of fundamental practices of the church, like the Eucharist, like reading scriptures, like coming together. Are, are all of the are shaped around that story, aren't they? Mm. Around that, that's what we are. Mm. <laughs> We're the people who um, have been pulled into um, this particular reality of what the world is like, the, the reality mm. of God in Christ. Mm. Uh, yeah, and you have that experience when you have the privilege of worshiping in a different church, in a mm. very, in a different country, in a different cultural context from your own. That there are elements that seem frighteningly unfamiliar, but there is this wonderful familiarity mm. of this shared story of Jesus, mm. this shared hope, mm. this shared faith in, in Christ. And even worshiping in a language where you don't quite understand yes. what's being said, you, there's still the familiarity of the actions and. Um, for the particularly the breaking of the bread and the sharing of the wine, you you know you don't need to understand the words to know that that that's what makes us who we are. Mm. So actually, the things that hold us together are are both doctrines, but also practices at the same time. There are certain things we do as Christians that we kind of have always done, and um, certain liturgical actions, pouring out wine, mm -hmm. breaking bread, sharing that amongst ourselves. I know baptizing our young or our new Christians in, in, in water in the name of Father, Son and Holy Spirit, um, seeking to love one another across different social boundaries, um, the reading of scripture, um, the explication, the, the explanation of scripture. You can go on, you know, a, a number of practices that we do that make you recognize what is a, a Christian church. And the, the, the building may be different, the language may be different, the, the songs might be different. Um, but actually, there are certain practices which, which kind of are part of our identity as a church that you can't quite get away from. Uh, and now, how, how wide you would, you know, how, how many of those rituals and practices you'd, you'd want to define is actually core, we'd, probably people would disagree on. But there is, a, there is a certain body of that, those things. And they're, they're, it's a really interesting missional question, isn't it? And again, you can see it happening in the New Testament, can't you? Do people have to be circumcised? Yeah. Is that yeah. a necessary yeah. part? Of becoming part of this this new community, so at every stage of our life, we've had to ask: Is this this yeah. bit necessary yeah. or not? And yeah. some we discover are, and some we discover aren't. And the trouble is, we don't necessarily know mm. in advance beyond the, the sort of central mm. core. Um, we 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 it, you sometimes have to be prepared to take a few risks. Is yeah. that true? Absolutely. And I think your example of circumcision is a, a brilliant one. You read the book of Acts. If the council in Jerusalem had not made that decision mm. to um, allow the gospel to fully go to the Gentiles, you can't mm. imagine what, mm. you know, would have mm. happened to, to the church. And that took huge courage. Um, but actually it comes out of this conviction that the gospel mm. must be for all people in mm. all times and all places. And there was, I mean, it's, it, and as you say, it's happened over the over the centuries, in some ways, this is not a new question. It's an old one. I mean, I, there was a thing back in the 17th century, and when the 
Jesuit missions were going out to China and India, there was this thing called the Kerel de Rit, this 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 um, argument over services and rights. So, for example, you know, some Jesuit missionaries was were saying, well, we, we shouldn't really put the cross in a church because it's offensive to the local people and it, it, it's, it will put them off. And so therefore they were kind of hiding the cross. And that news got back to Europe and there was a big kind of argument about this. Were they sort of, were they compromising the gospel by taking the cross out of a, out of a church? And, and you suddenly realise when you read, read about those kind of debates, it's exactly the same debates that we have. And the, the Jesuits at the time, you know, were known for their you know, casuistical approach to these questions, you know, well, you just have a different case law in different contexts, and maybe the Jesuits were the sort of early version of the emerging church of trying to sort of yeah. uh, adapt the gospel, but there was a, there's always controversy around those questions. And so actually this question of how you adapt the gospel, what you, what you, what you have to do to retain the identity of the church uh, and, and what you don't, is not a new question, it's one that's always been around in the church, it's always part of missiology. Absolutely. Fascinating. Well, very interesting to talk about all those um, questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to any of your questions, who those of you emailing in, but well, I'm sure we'll get back to them next time around. So, but Hannah, just tell us again what your book is going to be called and when it's coming out. Um, it should be out in uh, September. September 2017. 2017, and it's called New World, New Church, The Theology of Emerging Church. Mm, thank you. Very good. So if you are listening to this after September, you can get it. But um, if you're listening to it before, you might be able to pre-order it uh, in advance. So, Hannah, thank you very much for joining us today on GodPod. Thank you for having me. And uh, so it's goodbye from Jane. Bye. Goodbye from me. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.